his ministry here and preaching for us uh, today and Lord willing next week. So, Pastor Dave, thank you. Uh, while you're opening up your bulletin or your Bible to 1 Samuel 7, let me just say it is it's a privilege, it's a blessing to be with you here today. Uh, it's my first time in Shanghai, but this is the city in which my father-in-law grew up as a child, so it's special to see the city in that way. Um, as one who got here last night after traveling 12 time zones, um, that might be the first time in church history the preacher actually falls asleep during the service. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. Let's hear from God's word, uh, 1 Samuel 7, verse 3 to the end, 17. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before the Lord. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. In my younger days, when I was preparing to be a pastor, I was once in a class with a bunch of other aspiring pastors, and we were 
talking about various aspects of church leadership, including worship. And there was a discussion um, about the songs and hymns that are sung in churches. And there was a discussion about how often there are hymns sung that are not understood. I don't think that's the case here. Clearly, there's a lot of attention to learning hymns and what they mean before you sing them. But in this discussion, we were reflecting on that, and the instructor, who was a very seasoned pastor, uh, said, for example, how often have churches sung the hymn that includes this line, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and not understand what they're singing. That's the second verse from a hymn that's called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, it's also a reference to, the, uh, to verse 12 in our text today. So if one theoretically did not understand what's happening in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 7, it's also quite likely that they wouldn't understand that particular line in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. So a a goal for today, of course, is to understand this passage and to think about verse 12 in particular and what it is speaking about. And if you happen to come across that hymn, Come Thou Fount, you also will, will understand that a little bit better, I hope. But besides that misunderstanding of a particular uh, line from a particular hymn, there's perhaps a bigger misunderstanding to reflect upon, and it's probably one that you often think about, just the misunderstanding of why do we have these stories in the Old Testament in the first place? Are they there just to sort of be inspiring stories to make us feel good or give us an example to follow? As you know, in many places, that's how passages of the Old Testament are taught. At best, do this like they are doing here. Now, of course, stories may be very engaging to us, and there may be things that are for our own imitation. However, the main point in all of God's word is certainly much deeper than just do this like other people did. All of these stories of the Old Testament, including 1 Samuel 7, are a picture of us. And the narrative teaches us about God's relationship with his people including us, even if it's coming from a very different time in Bible history. Our passage today is a great example of this, because besides how it may appeal to us as a story and help us to see some things that we ought to do differently in our life, we can also see how much we are like the Israelites, and their faith is like our faith. So if you have a reason to set up your Ebenezer or sing about it, it's because you recognize here in this story something about your relationship with God. So first we'll try to understand this passage, this part of 1 Samuel. And having done that, we want to embrace this idea that Israel is us and we are Israel. And if we're successful, we'll be able to speak about raising up our Ebenezer, understanding that God has been our help through his son, Jesus Christ. Whenever we're tempted to forget that, we'll be able to look back on those markers of God's faithfulness in our life to understand it more clearly. So let's start by looking at the time when Israel raised up an Ebenezer. 
Now, just to set this in context, because maybe it's been a while since you've read through all of 1 Samuel, this part of 1 Samuel comes after a couple different themes have been developed in the first six chapters. One is the crisis of leadership. There's a problem at this time in the nation of Israel of having the right leader, particularly the right godly leader who will lead the people in a way for their blessing. And we see very early on, it's not going to be the sons of Eli, who were wicked men. Instead, God gives Samuel to be a different kind of leader. And actually that cycle is repeated again with Saul and who? David, right? God giving a leader to be a blessing to the people. But another theme that is developed at the same time in the early chapters is that God is working a change in his people, even if it brings them through seasons of humility. In fact, I mean, that's often the case, that God works in us by humbling us. And that's going on also at this time for the people of Israel. In particular, they had just lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. You could go back and see in chapter 4 how it was lost on the battlefield, And in chapter 5, there's this great story about how as long as the Ark of the Covenant was with the pagan Philistines, there's all these bad things that happened to them, so they want to give it back, and then they go to great lengths to give it back. Well, that brings us up really to our passage in chapter 7 and starting at verse 3. In fact, the previous verse says that when they got the Ark back, there was 20 years of peacefulness. But that peacefulness is experienced in a kind of general humility among the people because they realize why they lost that ark. The judge Samuel is is there now back in the story. He kind of receded out of the story for a couple chapters, but he comes back in verse 3 with a message for the people as they have now gotten back the ark and having been chastened a little bit. And he says in verse 3, to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Another person in the circumstances might have been tempted to be a little bit more content than Samuel seems to be. For example, at this point in the story, the wicked sons of Eli were gone. The ark had been recovered, and it's noted that this is actually during a time when the Philistine threat was not as bad. They weren't being constantly defeated, as was happening a little bit earlier. So in the big picture, this is not the worst time for the people And another leader might be content to say, well, we're doing pretty good here, right? This isn't too bad. Things have improved a bit. But Samuel recognizes that there was still some remaining forms of idolatry. And because of how God's covenant worked with the people of Israel, because of those remaining forms of idolatry, there was the burden of oppression by the Philistines. See, that's how things worked In the Old Covenant, when God's people were faithful to the Lord, they were blessed. And when they were unfaithful, 
all kinds of consequences would happen to show them the bitter fruit of sin, including oppression by the Canaanites, like the Philistines. The particular form of sin at this time is identified as being Baal worship. These are religious practices that the Israelites learn from their pagan neighbors, from the Philistines. Baal and his wife, Ashtoreth, represented a pagan fertility cult. The idea that if these idols were served and given sacrifices as they required, there would be a healthy crop each year. And by the way, that worship of Baal also involved cult prostitution. That was a form of sexual immorality that was demanded in order to satisfy Baal. So when you know this, you can appreciate that there's many reasons to root out this idolatry, but also reasons that made it particularly difficult. It's hard to root out idolatry when it's wedded together with some forms of um, of of wickedness and immorality. But Samuel shows his fear of the Lord and his faithfulness in in insisting it's not enough to put this idolatry mostly away, but it needed to be put entirely away, both in its outward expressions and in its inward desires. That's why he says, put away the foreign gods and the asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And only then will he deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. I think we all can feel a little bit of conviction at this point. I do. We are too often content to escape some or maybe most of the trappings of sin and idolatry. But we have a surprising amount of tolerance for the last remaining holdouts. We would never murder. I hope. I think we can speak. I can speak for you on this count. We would never murder. But I think you can recognize, as I do, how easy it is to nurture resentment and anger in the heart. Sometimes an anger that is seen most clearly by the people closest to us. Or we would never visit a brothel, and yet we're not careful enough to guard our heart in our entertainment that we digest. Well, if anger or lust remains, how much more the idols of materialism? That we come to church and we confess that we serve God alone and we trust him to provide everything for us, and yet, during the week, it is very easy to struggle with the promises of materialism, that if we just have enough stuff, we'll be okay, and we'll be happy, and to take our eyes off of the Lord. Well, there's very practical lessons here about Christian repentance, that true repentance must be according to God's standard. He tells us what he requires and identifies the areas of our life where we are falling short. We are not the ones that set the standard of what will make God happy. God tells us. And God not only tells us and sets the standard, but God also puts it on his own terms that repentance must be complete. So from verses 5 to 11... The people hear this exhortation to repentance, to turn away from the idols and these forms of wickedness. And we see them turning. 
And it's not just turning in repentance, but that fruit that goes along with repentance, faith. Granted, in the story, hopefully you remember, that response to the people involves a lot of things by Samuel. That Samuel leads the people together and Samuel prays for them and Samuel even offers a sacrifice of a lamb. But although there's a focus on many of these actions of Samuel, it's not independent of the people. They are the ones who gather together and they cry out to the Lord and they fast. And um, they're part of this uh, symbolic action of pouring out water, which is probably some expression of repentance. They cry out and they plead with Samuel to pray for them that they would indeed turn away from this wickedness and find their hope in the Lord alone. The point is, of course, not that Samuel himself has the power to do any of these things. But the point is that God was revealing his own saving power in the Old Covenant, sometimes using the priests and the sacrificial system. And that's how uh, that same promises are expressed today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that we need a mediator and we need atonement for our sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But in the time of the Old Testament, that was expressed through the priesthood and the animal sacrifices and those petitions of Samuel. All those things here looking ahead to the Lord Jesus and his sacrificial work. So we see the faith of Israel growing and their active participation. And along the way, the Lord shows his faithfulness to them because they're crying out in light of the press of the Philistines against them. them. And it says the Lord sent this huge clap of thunder in verse 10. And it was so powerful, it overwhelmed the the Philistine army and it gave the Israelites a victory in battle. And we see once again that the Lord is faithful to deliver his people as they Look to him. Do you notice in the Old Testament, the people of Israel never win in battle because they have a stronger army. It's always because their eyes are on the Lord when they're going into that battle. That's always the case. In fact, it's often the case that they are very much outmanned and they have less artillery. But if their eyes are on the Lord, God gives them the victory. If their eyes are not on the Lord, it doesn't matter. They will always lose. And we see here a beautiful correspondence with our lives. It's just like the way that we follow the Lord. We have to rest in God's power to save, but God wants two things from us, repentance and faith. Repentance and confessing and turning from our sin and faith in fleeing to Christ, the Lamb of God, and following him. The reason to wrestle with this calling is that we're um, we're, we're all familiar with um, those who have expressed Christianity as just requiring a person to have a momentary confession of faith in Christ. But then many have that momentary experience and then go on to show no fruit, uh, spiritual fruit in their life as, uh, that follows. And it begs the question, what kind of conversion is it that leaves a person unchanged? True conversion, biblical conversion is not just a momentary experience of turning to the Lord, but it's a lifelong process of growing in him, dying to sin and bearing fruit through faith. And that's why this story of Israel should really hit home. It comes in the life of Israel long after they have 
first been called to put their hope in the Lord. This is long after the Red Sea, for example. This is long after they came into the land of Canaan, crossed over the Jordan River. But they realized in these years that there's still a lot of spiritual work that needs to be done in their own life. The ultimate danger is not just the wickedness of the Philistines, it's the wickedness that dwells in their own hearts, that God calls them to turn away from in repentance as they turn to him. So as God humbles them to recognize their sin and its bitter fruit, we see this pattern of growing repentance and faith, and we see God's work advancing in them. Don't you want that to be what your life is like? Not one who is known for having a momentary expression of faith in Christ, but this pattern of looking to the Lord over the long term and growing and showing greater fruit of the Spirit as you put your hope in Christ. Well, let's continue and see where this passage goes, picking up at verse 12. After all this happened, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And it it talks about how they gained back the ground and and, and they they were not conquered by these um, pagan Philistines. And Samuel continued his ministry throughout the cities of Israel. This is finally where we get to the Ebenezer stone. Samuel set up a monument to God's deliverance of the people as a marker of that victory over the Philistines. But it was a victory that they only obtained through the very painful experience of losing the ark and being captive in uh, forms of idolatry that had consequences. They had to go through this painful experience that they would fully repent and turn back to the Lord. Similar stones, monuments, um, show up earlier in the story, especially in Joshua. You can find in Joshua 4 as well as in Joshua chapter 24, times when they set up stones as markers of God's redemption. In those earlier times, they showed God's Salvation when entering the promised land. And here, once again, it's to remind the people what God has done. He is their help. That's what Ebenezer means. Stone of help. Ebenezer. Stone of help. Ironically, Ebenezer is also the name of the place where they went against the Philistines with the ark, and they were defeated, and the ark was stolen. In other words, there's like a double meaning of Ebenezer. It both pointed them to this time of God's salvation and deliverance, but it was a reminder of when they had failed as well. But it took them those months without the ark and those 20 years of humility and lamentation to learn to trust the true stone of help, the Lord. We also have an Ebenezer to raise. God has also been our help. He has saved us by his grace and power. And even now, we are to live trusting in him. Till now, God has helped us. And since he has helped us till now, he can be trusted for all that is to come. He is the future hope that we have as well. 
So should we erect a stone monument to make this our testimony? Some people literally do this. Put up stones, especially gravestones, that may include a testimony of God's salvation. I think of the one Christian writer who put on his gravestone the simple verse, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an especially meaningful verse to put on a gravestone because it comes from the passage of 1 Corinthians 15 about resurrection. So even as his body was put in the ground, his hope was in the God of resurrection power through Jesus Christ. I think of another sort of Ebenezer Stone my friend Mark had in Massachusetts. I don't know if he still drives this red pickup truck, but on the back of his red pickup truck in bright yellow letters, he wrote, Grace Happens. People put a lot of signs and slogans on the back of pickup trucks. But my friend Mark wanted to make it clear that Christians believe in grace. Grace is a reality for us. Or even more fashionable these days is the Ebenezer Stone of Tattoos. Many people get tattoos. Many Christians think this is a great place to put on their own body markers of what gives them identity and meaning in life. And so they may put a reference to their faith in their tattoos. Get a tattoo of a cross or perhaps a Bible verse. You've probably seen that. My mother told me recently she plans to get a tattoo of an anchor. And I was very surprised because my mother is 80 and she's never had a tattoo, but she said it's to represent my faith. I said, okay, mom, all right, whatever you want to do. She hasn't gotten it yet, but I'm prepared. God has given us an Ebenezer stone to remind us, all of us who are believers, till now God has helped us. The true stone of help is Jesus Christ. He is the monument to God's powerful and gracious work to save us. As the Son of God, Jesus came near to us, not only so we'd know God, so that we would be brought back to a right relationship with God. And he does that by paying for our guilt and sin. He makes us holy and righteous through his finished work, his death and resurrection, and ascension. And he gives us new life. And through him, through Christ, we are embraced as God's beloved sons and daughters. That is a help. That is a redemption. In our time of need, God sent his son for us. So Jesus is the stone of help. Jesus is the true Ebenezer. It helps us to understand the symbolism of stones and rocks in many parts of the Bible. We don't often think of the ways that these stone images and rock images have uh, commonality throughout the Bible, but it's, it's very much there. You could start in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and see God described as a rock of refuge for his people, or in Isaiah, where the Lord God is called an everlasting rock. But as you get closer to the New Testament, there's more and more an emphasis on that rock being an image of the work of the Messiah, 
in Daniel. There's a small rock that, of course, has a mighty impact in casting down and in building up. It's an image of Christ. Or in 1 Peter 2 in the New Testament, Jesus is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. In 1 Corinthians 10, pretty much all the images are fulfilled in Christ, including that rock from which the water flowed. And it says that rock was Christ. In other words, in light of all the use of rocks to reflect God's redemption, and especially the work of the Messiah, it's not much of a jump to see, once again, an image of Christ and our hope in Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, who has died and risen for us. The whole point of a monument stone is to show visually the hope of God's people. We have that visual reminder too. Jesus himself gives us a visible representation of his grace every time we come together for the Lord's Supper. It communicates the same thing to us. It's just bread and wine. It doesn't have any power on its own. No more power than a rock. A rock doesn't have any power on its own. But that bread and wine points to the spiritual reality of what Jesus did to deliver us. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, that representation is a powerful instrument of grace and an instrument of assurance for our own growing faith in the Lord. Our Savior, the only one to live without sin, became sin for us when he gave up his body and shed his own blood to take upon him our guilt before God. That is a visible monument to our ultimate confidence in the Lord and his salvation. Even as the name Ebenezer was specially chosen to remember their prior defeat in battle when they lost the ark, as well as this victory in 1 Samuel 7, the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of our guilt that stood between us and God, but it also focuses on the solution the work of Christ to put away that guilt, casting into the depths of the sea all of our guilt and condemnation. And so it humbles us to see that represented in the Lord's Supper. But it also lifts us up to see the work has been done. Now the gift of God is free, and what we need to do is believe and know this is God's work for us. He is our help. Just like the Israelites had to learn the painful disciplines of repentance and faith, We also know that God will need to teach us repentance and faith through many days and weeks and months and years that we may know the depth of our need, but also the full provision in Christ. But God will get the victory. Thankfully, a victory more important than a victory over the Philistines. The victory that God gives us is the life of Christ being worked out in each one of us redeeming us, cleansing us, and finally glorifying us that our life would shine forth the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the message that Samuel was bringing around to all the villages in Judea, in Israel, as he commanded them to put away their foreign gods and direct their hearts to the Lord, the God of our salvation. And that is the message that God has appointed to be made known, not only in his church, but in the whole world, that he may draw his people to himself. Hebrews 12, 
says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful to your covenant people. Lord, we see in the people of Israel both reflections of our weakness and our failure, the times when we are tempted to look away in our outward sin and rebellion. But Lord, as you were gracious to them, calling them back, you are also gracious to us. And call us even now to turn from our sin and to give our hearts wholly to you that we may see your salvation so clearly given to us, not by our own works, but by the works of your Son. Lord, help us to grow in repentance and faith. Help us to even be built up by those reminders, those memorial stones of Christ that you give to us, especially in the supper. We pray that you would continue this good work in us until it is complete. Thank you, Father, that you are a God of grace and mercy to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.